Opioid addiction treatment has been evolving year after year as the death count continues to rise in America. This form of addiction is highly lethal these days with overdoses surpassing car accidents. Over the past few years, medication-assisted treatment has been at the forefront of the addiction treatment world. Suboxone, Vivitrol are the heavy hitters in this group, and what you learn in the media just scratches the surface. My name is Pat Failing. I'm an addiction psychiatrist. I treat patients with drug addiction and alcoholism, finding tactical solutions for lethal problems. You're listening to Recovery Arc. An NPR story in the first week of August 2017 talked about the interplay between drug reps going after what's called the drug court system, specifically to promote uh, the medication Vivitrol. To dissect this story and to understand a little bit more of what's going on in terms of treatment avenues around the country, you have to understand a little bit of what drug court is. So a drug court is a structured model of the criminal justice system in which people are guilty of some sort of crime, and that crime is heavily connected to either drugs or alcohol. And then what happens is the person gets lucky in a sense and gets connected to either a district or maybe a judge who is sympathetic to their cause and realizes that they have a bona fide addiction. Then what happens is the person gets offered the opportunity to be in drug court, uh, but they are guilty of their offense. So it's called a post-plea arrangement. Basically, these people are uh, required to do a high accountability program with significant consequences if they don't comply. They're asked to sit in front of the judge every couple weeks and talk about their health. They're required to do uh, weekly drug screens or breathalyzers, and they're required to attend ongoing therapy groups. If they fall out of treatment or relapse on drugs, they have to go to jail. So there's kind of a, a firm consequence that's attached to this. Interestingly, the drug court model has a very high success rate. Uh, some of the math on this is about 42% of the people that are in the drug court system are able to maintain full recovery and sobriety for about an 18-month stretch. That, that number is really very high. So this article talks about mandating people in the drug court system to take an injectable naltrexone medication, and the brand name for this is Vivitrol. This medication is an abstinence approach to addiction. The best way I can describe this is that Vivitrol functions as an opioid vaccine. But the problem is the medication only lasts for one month, and it's very expensive. Uh, one injection of Vivitrol costs about $1,000, give or take. There's also a lot of concern about does one month of Vivitrol make all that much of a difference for somebody. So when I'm working with patients for a Vivitrol algorithm, we're usually looking at 12 shots in a row for them to commit to a kind of a whole year of being vaccinated from heroin or opioids. Vivitrol treatment is very fascinating in that it's not a medication that has an active response. So what I mean by that is, let's say you're struggling with uh, blood pressure you would or high blood pressure. You would take a medication that would lower that blood pressure and continue to do its job so long as you're taking the medication to stabilize your condition. 
The same would be true for people who take a stimulant medication for ADHD. That medication is increasing dopamine in the brain, so it's causing a baseline neuro, uh, neurochemical change, if you will. That doesn't happen with Vivitrol. The medication on board is essentially not doing anything, um, but it does provide a huge blockade or buffer in case people were to uh, go back to drug-using patterns. What would happen in, in that instance is the people might uh, buy painkillers or buy heroin, try to use, they would get minimal effect, and they would kind of realize they had wasted their money. That's the whole philosophy behind this, is if we can vaccinate somebody from opioid use for an extended period of time, it would give them a window to be able to make significant life change. And I think that that is what these programs are trying to achieve. Now we have to compare this to the other large-scale medication, which probably has an overall higher prescription rate in the country, which is Suboxone. So Suboxone is the brand name medication of something called buprenorphine. Suboxone is a replacement approach. So these, these medication pathways are very different in terms of what's actually going on. It treats withdrawal symptoms, and it has a significant reduction in cravings for people who are on Suboxone treatment. That's different than Vivitrol. There, there's some question about that in terms of do people actually report fewer cravings when they're on Vivitrol shots. They might, but that seems like it would be more of a psychological phenomenon, such as uh, you don't crave alcohol if you're in a residential treatment center. Some of that has to do with that we don't serve alcohol here. And so when people don't have access, oftentimes they will uh, obsess or fret over their drug use quite a bit less. The two manufacturers of these medications are very fascinating because they kind of have a corner on the market. So the manufacturer of the Vivitrol shots is a company called Alchemies. And the manufacturer of Suboxone is something called Indivior. These companies are essentially making such a huge revenue out of the opioid addiction. But it's tricky because I can't fault them. Their medications are quite strong and we have not been able to find alternatives to what they provide. Um, so overall, in my practice, I tend to be supporting patients beyond being on these treatment programs or protocols. The bigger problem, in my mind, is what are the tactful steps to actually get somebody on the medication? The articles in the media content for this doesn't address any of that. They basically say, oh, you're addicted to heroin? Well, we just need treatment, and you need to be on buprenorphine, and you're good to go. There is so much more that's wrapped it up into these treatment paths. For instance, the Vivitrol medication is a firm antagonist. It's an outright blocker, and it will make people that, if they're actively using heroin or painkillers, and get a Vivitrol shot, they will get violently sick. Um, probably for multiple weeks. So to be a candidate for a Vivitrol shot, you need to have completely detoxed off of painkillers or heroin. So what's one of the main targets 
for people getting Vivitrol shots. It's not the baseline population that's looking to get clean. It's usually people who have been recently incarcerated, i.e. the drug court system, or people who have been recently hospitalized, i.e. the residential treatment system. Now this raises other potential problems of when you follow these patients going forward. Some of the research that I've seen on this shows that if people who receive a Vivitrol shot, so these are patients who are essentially vaccinated for 30 days from heroin, the percentage of them that seem to be getting a second shot drops to about 30%. So that's a 70% attrition rate of people who are not getting a second shot. I do not believe that one month is enough time for people to make a whole lifestyle change, especially when we're talking about hardcore opioid addiction. One month is not enough time. When I work with patients on this, I see somebody as a good candidate if they have a fair amount of supports that are essentially going to mandate, if you will, that they get shot after shot. If people just get a single shot and then walk away, there's a question about did we even help them? And there might even be some sort of a negative component. The Vivitrol medication completely cleans out the brain in terms of opioids and it totally resets tolerance. So some of the original data that looked at Vivitrol out of Russia in terms of its approval or in the United States for usage uh, for opioid addiction showed that when people stopped Vivitrol shots, they had about a two to three fold increase in overdose. So we care about that quite a bit. That's a concerning number. So patients need to know that their overall protective component of this medication is through maintaining on it. It's not through receive it almost as like a, a cure in some way. The ultimate goal, once again, is this concept of life change in that uh, while the medication is on board, we can buy them some time that they can overhaul things like their housing, some basics about their relationships, perhaps get something like a depressive diagnosis under control, a lot of different things, be involved in an actual treatment program because there's not the distraction of the opioid mayhem going on. We buy them so that almost like the patients can breathe a little better and do uh, more in-depth therapeutic work. One of the primary problems that we find with the other treatment path, Suboxone, is that the person is physically dependent on the medication. The NPR article, I don't feel, gives justice to Suboxone as being a very bona fide treatment option for patients. They make it sound like uh, people who are in the drug court system who are on Suboxone are just distributing it to other people and not taking it appropriately and essentially getting high. That is not what's going on. I, I would disagree with that clinically. Part is because the Suboxone is, is more of a long-acting buffer, if you will. So if you had somebody who was entirely opioid naive, who had never taken painkillers or heroin before, and would take some Suboxone, they would probably get tired, maybe a little bit loopy, similar to like taking a pill of morphine. But somebody who's struggling with long-standing heroin use or painkiller use, 
they're not using Suboxone to, quote, get high. If they wanted to be getting high, they would be doing that. I think one of the bigger problems with Suboxone that they don't talk about in the article is the potential risk of people going on and off it uh, somewhat based on circumstances. We're creating somewhat of a roller coaster phenomenon of going up and down the medication and the possibility of fully going off, having relapses on painkillers or heroin, and then moving back on the Suboxone. So it creates a little bit of a roller coaster, if you will. That seems to be going against some of the overall principles of recovery, what we're aiming for, namely things like life stability and consistency. One of the things that people in the court system don't like Suboxone as much, I think, is because the medication is in the, is in the hands of the client. And that's not the case with Vivitrol. Vivitrol, you essentially walk into a center and they administer it to you, and then you've gotten your vaccine and you can move on with your month. Suboxone doesn't work that way. You get a prescription, and they're essentially trusting you to take this medication appropriately. When you follow the overall data for Suboxone, it has markedly strong results in terms of preventing heroin use, preventing death, and retaining people in treatment. So treatment retention is a pretty powerful goal that we always focus on especially in opioid addiction. If we can keep people coming back and keep the dialogue going, they can succeed. When the dialogue ends, all bets are off. So I, I'm highly invested in just keep people coming back. And Suboxone has an incredibly high track record for that, probably more so than any other treatment approaches. What has not really happened, at least in the clinical literature up to this point, that um, me and my team at the University of Colorado are waiting for is the head-to-head -head research. So this is the, the clinical studies that will put somebody on Vivitrol compared to somebody on Suboxone. I have some questions about how they're actually going to do that research. And I also would love for there to be any sort of research that was what we would call a naturalistic study. So a naturalistic study gets to my concept of how feasible can somebody actually start somebody up on this medication. Getting back to my example of blood pressure treatment, if you were struggling with high blood pressure, your doctor would prescribe you a medication, you would go to a pharmacy, you would start taking it, and the goal is you would take it consistently to be a good manager of your blood pressure. There would be no barriers to you taking that medication. There might be resistance in some way. People don't like to take meds. So overall compliance rates on even blood pressure medication is not all that great. But there wouldn't be a ton of overall barriers in your body. That's not the case with Vivitrol. If I need somebody to be fully clean for a week or two weeks, and then go on Vivitrol, it does beg the question of have they reached a fair amount of confidence and stability that they might be relatively okay. This is, this is somewhat controversial. Also, what I don't know is how many people, once they get through their detox, are feeling better, are still going to want to receive the Vivitrol shot. My suspicion on this is that the majority of the patients are now confident, and they're like, yeah, I don't think I need that. I think I'll be fine. 
they probably need quite a bit more support than that. I would love for them to be on a program such as Vivitrol, but I, that's what I question, is how many actually follow through. This is different than with Suboxone. Of patients that I see in my office who are on Suboxone protocols, I can bridge you onto Suboxone probably within the day of you quitting heroin use. Ideally, we like people to be 12 to 24 hours out from their last opioid use so that they don't have too much of a clash of these medications. Suboxone does have some sort of a, a blockade component. It's not as strong as Vivitrol, but it will kind of muscle out the opioid in the brain. We would call that precipitated withdrawal. This does happen. It's not dangerous, and oftentimes people uh, are who experience this will rebound even within the day and feel better and better. So we pay attention to a lot of these kinds of things, especially when we're talking about opioid addiction. When you wrap all this together and like you're looking at the medications, the drug court system, the overall strategy of what we're trying to do, opioid addiction affects other people. And that is why so many people care about these treatment paths and treatment algorithms. This is more than just life-saving efforts. There, there is um, some form of a wreckage that can come from ongoing opioid addiction. So there are other stakeholders. If you looked at the principles involved in something like a drug court system, their primary principle is probably going to be justice. That sounds cliche, but I mean, what I mean when I say that is justice over autonomy. So when we look at ethical principles we use in healthcare treatment, there's a few different, kind of a hierarchy, if you will. Autonomy tends to be the top, so giving people the freedom to choose. Then we drop down to principles like beneficence, which is doing good for people, uh, something called non-malfeasance, which is not harming people, and then justice, which is a concept of a greater good. People in the legal system, especially this drug court system, they are sacrificing some of the top three in the interest of the greater good, and they have a high amount of leverage over people. I'm really going to watch this in terms of how it really plays out. In, when the NPR article looked at these pathways, they really talked about the concept of pharmaceutical reps going to judges in that it created a scenario in which the judge would now be advising the patient instead of a physician making recommendations that can be pretty controversial because the judge isn't trained in these medications or in understanding the research. It's more just the judge's opinions about what this person sees in their courtroom and what they want to see in their courtroom. So the FDA may weigh in on some of these practices. It's also interesting to know that in my experience with pharmaceutical reps, specifically for these medications, Vivitrol, Suboxone, the reps tend to be very by the book, so they have to be. There's a lot of legal regulations dealing with pharmaceutical marketing in terms of just ethical practices, what they can or cannot say. 
So this seems a little bit of a loophole to me that they're able to target judges directly. But it's complex because it's not all terrible. People that are on these medications really do thrive. So they do quite well. So from a greater good principle, if a lot of the people that are in the criminal justice, justice system are on Vivitrol combined with a wraparound treatment, that's a pretty good treatment package. And we're trying to find ways that we can build that package for all patients, if they have legal issues or not. Thank you for listening to the Recovery Arc podcast. I'm Dr. Pat Phelan. If you're interested in learning more or working a weekly therapy program for yourself, sign up on our Recovery Arc site. You'll get 52 weeks of guided addiction content focusing on science, medications, therapy, peer support, and family recovery. Recovery Arc, blending science with strategy.